You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we ask that you would be with us as we study your word this morning and seek to get some answers why we believe in Christianity. We ask this in Jesus' name that your spirit would bless and that you would help us to be attentive and eager listeners. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. In this seminar, good to see some familiar faces. Good to see you, bud. Another Ohio guy. In this seminar, we want to answer a few questions. I'll try to go over here. If you can't see the screen or me, um, I would invite you to come and get over here so that you can see the whole thing. Um, We want to answer a few questions. Why are you a Christian? And if you say, because that's what I was brought up in, the secular, the Hindu, the Jew, the Muslim, the Buddhist would not accept that answer, right? They should not accept that answer. Why are you not a Jew? Why are you not a Muslim? Why are you not a Hindu or a Buddhist? Why? Why, why are you a Christian? And we need to give reasonable answers for what we believe. What reasonable answers do you have for your religious view? So therefore, this is a seminar in Christian apologetics. Has anybody here ever heard of that word, apologetics? Okay, what what does it mean? 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you. Just take one and pass it around. Most everything that is on the slides is on, is on your handout. Some things aren't. I made some last-second changes like I'll do every day this week. This part is not on, so you're going to have to take notes and write 1 Peter 3.15. Okay, so 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. Give a what? A defense to everyone who asked you for a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. So... We need to have reasonable answers why we believe what we believe, okay? So this isn't like explaining Adventism. This isn't an Advent. I can do this to any Christian denomination in the world, right? So this isn't a case for Christianity, not necessarily a case for Adventism. Does that make sense? Let the church say amen. So what is this Greek word? Now, we're not going to get into Greek and Hebrew too much, but a little bit is, is good. This word right here, defense, in some versions it's answer. It's apologia. You're not apologizing. Apologetics is not apologizing for being a Christian. I'm sorry, Mr. Jew or Muslim or Buddhist, that I'm a Christian. No, that's, that's, not, what, that's not what apologetics is. It means to answer, clearing of self to give a defense. So that's what the word apologetics means. It means to give a defense. So therefore, Christian apologetics would mean give an answer for Christianity. Okay, It simply means to give an answer for what you believe. And so this class is gauged to give you some ammunition so that your secular friends at work, your your Jewish friends at work, or your Buddhist friends, or wherever, you can have some answers to give them why you are what you are. So, where are we going this week? We are going to talk about today, does God exist? Tuesday, why do we believe in the Bible? Wednesday and Thursday, we're going to talk about how can we prove this. So, we're actually going to spend three days on why we believe the Bible. Because if we can't start there, 
We have nothing to offer anybody, right? So don't miss, especially, I mean, don't miss any of them, right? But don't miss Wednesday and Thursday because this is just fabulous information. Proving the Scriptures from Old Testament archaeology, proving the Scriptures from New Testament archaeology. And then Friday, we're going to make a case for the resurrection of Christ and the case for the empty tomb. So you're not going to want to miss any of them. So let's get to our topic for today. Does God exist? Does it matter? Okay. Some people believe that faith is believing in what you know isn't true. Many people believe that if you become a Christian, you are committing intellectual suicide. Now, how I created this, this, these series of presentations was actually for a young, a young lady named Nicole who is in my church. She was dating the head elder's son for eight years, and he wouldn't marry her because she was not, he was, she was not a Seventh-day Adventist. And, and uh, when I got to my, my new church in Edenville, I made friends with her, asked the question, hey, do you guys know how to get a Bible study? Let me teach you how to do this. It's really easy. Hey, would you like to study the Bible? See how hard that was? That's how you get a Bible study, right? And so I asked her, Do you, would you like to study the Bible? And she said, sure, right? And so she had Bible studies from the previous pastor. She'd been to a couple evangelistic meetings. And I created this series just specifically for her, and I baptized her two weeks ago. Oh, Amen? Yeah. And there's going to be a wedding soon at my church. It's going to be exciting. <laughs> so that is, that is the, the, the origin of, of this seminar. So her family, her family was, is secular, makes fun of the Bible, makes fun of religion. Then you have this weird Adventist stuff with this Ellen White sister that we believe in, and it's even a little bit more weird, right? Christianity is a thinking person's religion. I mean, I'm glad somebody said amen. It's not a leap into the darkness. You do not put your brain on the shelf and let everybody do your thinking for you. It's not blindness. It is a thinking person's religion. It is an intelligent step into the light. Hebrews 11 and verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things what? Now, think of this if you were a secular individual or a Muslim or whatever or a Jew. You read this text and the world says seeing is believing, right? But we say faith is the substance. A substance is something that you can touch. Substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seeing. So a secular individual sees a statement like this, they're like, I thought seeing was believing, but you're saying not seeing is believing. And so they're like, yeah, Christianity is a bunch of intellectual nincompoopery, right? But there is a connection between faith and evidence. God never asks us to believe anything even in his own existence, without giving us reasons to believe, which is why the series is called Reasons to Believe. Our friend Ellen White says in Steps to Christ, page 105, God never asks us to believe without giving us what? Sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. His existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason, and this testimony is abundant. Yet God has not removed... He's never removed the possibility of doubt. Our faith must what? Rest upon evidence, not demonstration. Those who wish to doubt will have opportunity 
while those who really desire to know the truth will find plenty of evidence upon which to rest their faith. Okay? Muhammad Ali is a name that most of you know. You know him as Cassius Clay or, you know, the heavyweight champion of the world for some time. He is noted for many things, but humility is not one of those things, right? There was a story that you may or may not have heard where he got on a plane and the fasten your seatbelt button or the light came on and you heard the little ding and the stewardess came by and she was checking everybody's seatbelt and she, she said, uh, Mr. Ali, fasten your seatbelt. He said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And then she didn't even miss a beat. She said right back to him, Superman don't need no plane. Now fasten your seatbelt, right? When it comes to giving answers for what we believe, we tend to think that we are supermen and we have all the answers. When the Lord will show you and the devil will show you at times that if there's a certain question or a couple well-placed questions that are asked to you, you're like, I'll get back to you on that, right? So the, the fasten your seatbelt sign is on, so let's study the Word together. There are times where we approach such subjects like the existence of God and other philosophical and metaphysical concepts like Superman, and we act like we have all these things figured out, when in reality, we're babes in the Word. Okay, So we're not going to pretend here like we have all the answers, but we have some, and we're going to do our best to, to give that. We want to give eight lines of evidence. Now, you can't prove that God exists. Okay, You cannot. You cannot prove that God exists. But what you can do is give reasons why you believe in God that show that it is more likely that God exists rather than does not. Okay, Number one, the case from the existence of life. This is sometimes referred to as the law of biogenesis, and that's a big eight-cylinder word. It's two words together, bios and genesis. Bios is life, genesis is beginning. So biogenesis is what? The beginning of life, right? So the law of biogenesis states that it is impossible for life to come from non-life. Lewis Pasteur demonstrated that if you took a pile of sanitized trash and put it in a dark corner, no life would come out of that. There has never been a single experiment, biological or otherwise, where life has come from non-life. That shows that life must beget life. Okay? The atheist or the secular individual has no answer to this type of, to this type of question. This is a major, not a minor, a major obstacle for the committed naturalist or the atheist. But somehow, they must come away with nothing began everything. That's the basis of their argument. They have no idea how the stuff was created, and see, I'm begging the question by assuming that it was created, or how it got there or evolved. How did the, the materials, how did the lightning that struck the primordial ooze and out came a single cell organism, then it began to, to split and became us? Where did those things come from? They have no answer. 
So, therefore, what they have just they have just demonstrated to you is that it takes faith to believe in evolution. And when we have faith, that is a religion. And so evolution, evolutionary thought is just as much a religion and may require more faith than Christianity to believe that from nothing came everything that we have today. Okay? So this I'm going to show you a snippet on the screen here of an interview that Ben Stein did with Richard Dawkins from a documentary called Expelled No Intelligence Allowed. And I want you to pay close attention to what, what he says. Because everything I believe is wrong, if it's true. So did you see how Richard Dawkins, one of the most committed secular atheists, naturalists, said that there's possible that there is a design? that there is a great designer. I thought that's great. So, the Darwinian has no answer for Genesis, but the Bible does. Luke 3.36, the Bible says, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son, this is a genealogy of, of God, a genealogy of man. The son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, Mahalalel, Anan, the son of Enosh, Seth, the son of Adam, and then where does it all begin? The son of God, right? So you can follow it all the way through. Notice where it all began. It began with God. Now this is very much a scientific explanation. This is an explanation that squares with modern science because life begets life. Amen? Amen. And so, of course, we believe that God is therefore the ultimate source of life. Point number two, um, case for the, the existence of God number two, the existence of things, including time. This is referred to as the cosmological proof for the existence of God. It can be put syllogistically like this. A syllogism has a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. My major premise, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Minor premise, the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause, and that cause is God, the uncaused cause of all things. In other words, this table has a cause, and it is the table maker. But you follow that all the way back. Like when your children are, are get to be about seven or eight years old, Daddy, where did I come from? And you say what? And you try to avoid the talk. Yeah. And you like duck and weave and you squirm around that until they're hopefully a little older, right? And then, well, you came for me. And then what's the next question? Daddy, where did you come from? Well, I came from grandma and grandpa. What's the next question? Where did they come from? And then you're telling them all, you're basically telling them what, what this here says. Adam, you came from Adam and we all came from God. Well, then what's the next question? Where did God come from? And the simple answer for that is the Bible does not explain God's existence. It declares it. I want to give you arguments. I want to give you two arguments here for the, for the existence of, of things when we deal with cosmology. I want to give you two arguments. The first is scientific and the other is philosophical. Okay, first let's go to the scientific. Up to about 70 years ago, it was considered common knowledge in the scientific and cosmological community that space was infinite. However, this was before the invention of the Hubble telescope. Since April 24, 1990, the Hubble telescope has told us 
that space, that the space that surround us is finite, okay? They can take a picture of some corner of space and it takes about 30 days for that picture to develop. And what they discovered is there is a place in the galaxy where the stars end, where they stop. They can point the telescope in any direction, north, south, east, or west, and they can see a wall, okay? They will find the same thing in any, in any direction. So what they discovered is, is that the universe has an end. And it's like they're looking out. It's like you, you have a telescope right here, and then you put a big salad mixing bowl over top of it. And they're seeing the edge of the salad mixing bowl, which means the universe has an end. This con the, but what they've also discovered is that the, the universe is expanding a little bit, okay? So this, this concept is also known as the expanding universe, right? So think about it. If the universe has an end and it is expanding, then naturally it stands that it must have a beginning. Many people call the beginning of the universe the Big Bang. I mean, we believe in the Big Bang. God spoke and bang, it happened, right? But Stephen Hawking does not believe in that, and he would, he would snarl at that, and he would, he would laugh at that. Stephen Hawking is considered, well, was considered, he died a little bit ago, the smartest man in the world, okay? He said almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. And of course, he said that in the Nature of Science, Nature of Space and Time in 1996. So notice what he said, that the universe has a beginning. The universe is finite, not infinite. So science is now saying that the universe has a beginning. If the universe has a beginning, then that must mean that it had a cause. And the only entity that could have caused the universe to begin is God, the uncaused cause. Now, let's go to the philosophical argument. Can you count to the middle of infinity? Yes or no? Okay. It is an impossibility to travel across an infinite series of anything, right? In other words, you cannot count to the middle or the end of infinity. But pretend for the sake of illustration that we have a bookshelf here, and the bookshelf goes infinitely high and infinitely wide. Can you get to the middle of that? Can you read all the way to the end of infinity? No, you cannot. Okay? The same is true of time. In order to have time, there must be a starting point which we can set the beginning of time. And since we have arrived to today and we can keep time, the definition of time is simply the measure of change. Since we have arrived to today, you have a beginning of time. And since we're here today, that must mean that time must have had a beginning at, at some point. So infinity is an interesting concept, but it's not necessarily scientific because everything had a beginning. And if something has a beginning, it has an end. The earth was created by God, and then the earth is going to be destroyed by God, according to Revelation chapter 20. Okay? So if we have an infinite universe, we could never have arrived to today since you cannot count to the middle of infinity. Does that make sense? All right. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created. I mean, it's amazing to me that, that Christian 
philosophers and Christian Bible teachers could say something like the earth evolved over thousands or millions of years and God created through natural processes when the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But if theistic evolution is true, it can't be because things have died and the fittest have survived, the stronger have killed off the weaker. And so the wages of sin is not death, it's that people or animals were stronger than the weaker. You see how Christianity and evolution cannot occupy the exact same intellectual space. They are mutually exclusive. You cannot believe in evolution and believe in the authority of the scriptures because Jesus said he created them male and female. He did not say they evolved. He said he created them and he was really referring to the act that he himself did. So, we asked the atheist, what caused the Big Bang? What caused the materials that caused the Big Bang? And what caused time to begin? What caused things to begin? And they have absolutely no answer for you. However, the Bible does. In the beginning, God. That's the answer. Okay, number three, the case from intelligent design. The case from design. This is referred to as the teleological proof. Comes from the Latin word teleos, which means simply design. This is very easy to grasp. Major premise. Design necessitates designer. Minor premise. The world exhibits the qualities of design. Major premise. God is therefore the designer of that world or that universe. Look at the world of nature. This is a peregrine falcon. Do you know the hunting habits of the peregrine falcon? They dive at very high, high heights, and sometimes they dive excess of 200 miles an hour, okay? And now, have you ever, when you were a kid, I mean, you wouldn't do this like yesterday, because all of you are mature adults, but do you remember when you were a kid and you stuck your head out the window? Can you breathe while doing that? No, you can't, because we have unidirectional lungs. You breathe in, and then you breathe out, right? One in, one out. A peregrine falcon has, has bidirectional. They breathe in through their, their mouth, and then it is, it, the oxygen is deposited all the way throughout its body so that when it dives, it, it can breathe and not pass out. Can you imagine if God gave birds unidirectional lungs? They would go into this dive and then, like a fighter pilot that wasn't correctly trained to deal with the G-forces, they would, they would faint, and then they would crash into the earth and die at 200 miles an hour. But God gave the, the peregrine falcon bi-directional lungs, which, which demonstrates design, right? And then you have the octopus. Are octopuses like humans or not like humans? They're not like humans, right? They're very much separated on the evolutionary scale, assuming that evolution is true. And I mean, it almost makes me itch to say that, right? But how many of you know that the octopus and the human being have the same exact type of eye? They have the exact same type of eye. And one of the questions that, that makes um, secular atheists and the Darwinian um, people who teach Darwinianism they have a very hard time explaining how an organ such as the eye could evolve. And then when you have to explain that it evolved twice on two separate creatures, 
that are way different on the evolutionary scale, that means that the eye would have had to evolve twice. Okay, this, this supposes that this was designed. The squid, the octopus, the human had a designer and that designer was God. Like you have glasses, you have like arms that go over top of your ears and a nose piece here that sits right on my face. That, that demonstrates the qualities of, of design. So the world is much more complex than the eyes of a human or a squid or the lungs of a bird, right? Since design necessitates designer, that designer must therefore be, be God, okay? So we move on to number four, the case for a life-sustaining universe. This is what is called the anthropic principle. The Greek word anthropos, anthropology is the study of man. So the, the anthropic principle simply means how man got here, okay? Modern cosmology has identified not less than 45 measured characteristics of the universe. Each of these characteristics um, demonstrate that the earth is so fine-tuned to a degree that moving any one of these 47 characteristics in any direction, any way, wouldn't make life hard, it would make it impossible, okay? So, the combined fine-tunedness of these 47 characteristics has led many modern cosmologists and astrophysicists to posit what is called the anthropic principle. It's in the Bible. It's been there a long time ago. In other words, when the universe was made, it appears that the maker had man in mind. In the last 50 to 60 years, the discoveries that are being made by astrophysicists and cosmologists um, have, cre have, have uh, understood that God is in the mix somewhere, okay? A lot of them are not completely Darwinian. Some of them have the idea in there somewhere, even as far out as Richard Dawkins is. You heard him say that it's possible that there's some kind of a designer, but that designer cannot be God because that would, be, that would just be awful, right? Because then I would have to subscribe to what that God says, Okay? So in some of these characteristics, the cosmology world has, has discovered 47. We're going to look at just two. Number one, and I'm not going to try to explain any of this, so you have to go Google all this. A strong nuclear force constant, a weak nuclear force constant, gravitational force constant. Number four, electromagnetic force constant. Five, ratio of electromagnetic force constant to gravitational force constant. Six, ratio of proton to electron mass. Seven, the ratio of the number of protons to the number of electrons. Eight, mass density of the universe. Nine, size of the relativistic dilation factor. 10, ratio of proton mass, neutron mass. 11, space energy density of the universe. 12, entropy level of the universe. 13, the velocity, the velocity of life. 14, the magnitude of Heisenberg uncertainty. 15, the uniformity of radiation. 16, the hom homogeneity, or however that word is explained the homogeneity of the universe, 17, the polarity of the water molecule, 18, the ratio of exotic matter to ordinary matter, 19, the average size and distribution of galaxy clusters. Anybody study that one lately? 20, the ground state energy level for helium-4, the decay rate for beryllium-8, 22, the ratio of neutron mass to proton mass. So, I mean, if you move any one of these to a fraction of the left or right, it's not that that life would be hard, it, wouldn't be, it would be absolutely impossible. 
Now, I don't explain, I don't pretend to be able to explain most of this stuff, but I don't have to be a cosmologist or an astrophysicist that the fool has said in their heart there is no God. Amen? So, the Bible describes the anthropic principle a long time ago. Isaiah 45, 18 says, For thus the Lord, thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and the earth, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be what? That means the earth was created with man in mind. This is the anthropic principle. I am the Lord, there is no other. Amen. Number five, the case of the existence of an objective universal moral code. This is what is called the axiological proof. It's simple to understand. <clears throat> it can be put syllogistically like this. If God does not exist, then moral objective values do not exist either. Minor premise. Moral values do exist. Conclusion, God exists as the great moral setter. Okay? He exists as the great moral lawgiver. This is an excerpt from a debate from 1948 between Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell, who is an atheistic philosopher, and Frederick Culpelston, who is a Catholic philosopher. Okay? Here's a, here's a piece of it. Frederick Culpelston, yes, but what is your justification for distinguishing between good and bad? Or how do you view the distinction between them? Bertrand Russell, I do not have any justification any more than I have when I distinguish between blue and yellow. What is my justification for distinguishing between blue and yellow? I can see that they are different. What does that mean? You'll, you'll learn in a minute. Well, that is an excellent justification. I agree with you. You distinguish between blue and yellow by seeing them. So how do you distinguish between good and bad? By what faculty? And he says, by my feelings. So unless God exists as the great moral setter, then there is no objective morality. Okay? So who is to say that there is an objective code that man should follow? Do you not find it interesting that most of the laws of the countries of the world are based on the second table of the Ten Commandments? Yes. Okay, that, that, that should be a big clue, that there is a great moral setter there, right? So how do we distinguish, if we're a secular or a humanist, between the acts of Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler? Who's to say that what she did was good and what Hitler did wasn't a favor for the earth. How do, we, how, do we, how do we reason through these things? If there is no transcendent morality, then morality is simply a matter between choosing what is blue and yellow. Okay, Who is to say that what the Germans did to the Jews in World War II is bad? If you're a Christian, you have an anchor that grounds your morality in scriptures in a way that you can make sense of and confront the evils that go along in the world, rather than just to accept that everything that happens just comes from God. Okay? Have you ever heard the question, we only have five sermons, and I'd like to deal with theodicy. Maybe you can come a little bit earlier and we can talk about theodicy, but this question of theodicy asks the question, if God is so good, then why is the world so bad? As a Bible-believing Christian, you have the book of Job. You know that the enemy did this. And that he used Job as an object lesson. He said, 
he said, Satan came to that meeting and he said, you stretch out your hand. God says, no, that's you. I don't do that. You do that. And Job is going to be faithful throughout the whole thing. Okay? That's a, it's very interesting that Bible scholars understand that the first book of the Bible ever written was what? Job. The first book of the Bible was Job, not Genesis. And it, the whole concept of the book of Job is dealing with God's character Theodicy. Theodicy is two words connected, theos and dike, which means God of justice. So we're asking the question with theodicy, where, how is God just? How is God fair? If God is so good, why, are the, why is the world in the condition that, that it's in? Okay. And so as Bible-believing Christians, you have a satisfactory answer to this question. And the simple answer is, we are in the mess that we're in because an angel abused free will. And when God gives free will, he does not take away free will, though those choose to use freedom for evil. Or else it could not be said that God absolutely gives freedom. Because if God took free will away from everybody, when they choose to use their freedom for evil, then are you really free? No, you're not, right? So when people use their freedom to fly planes into buildings, God, can, God cannot just turn their, 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 their course because freedom is actual, right? So because God is a God of love, God is love, love gives freedom, and freedom takes risk of war. Okay, so there's your little theodicy blurb there. I can give you about eight or nine books that you can go read on that if you want to learn more on, on that. It's something that I kind of really studied out well because when my mom died, I lost my faith as a pastor for several years. And the, the topic of theodicy has become something very special to me because it's, what, because it's what gave me my life back, okay? So maybe I'll do a seminar on theodicy sooner or later. Okay, so, but besides the laws of the land and besides your feelings, if you're a secular individual, there is no universal objective moral code. So what if my objective moral code says it's okay for me to kill you? But what if God's objective moral code says it is not okay? If God does not exist, then there cannot be any set standard of morals on the earth. God does exist, therefore, we accept God as the great moral giver. Amen? Okay, so Leviticus 11.45 says, I am the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be like me, right? Be holy, for I am holy. And if you believe that you came from monkeys... What you going to act like? A monkey. We're going to call you Curious George. Okay. Instead of Curious Aaron, right? John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Again, this is an insuperable obstacle for the committed atheist. How do they arrive at some cultural transcendent objective morality? They cannot because their morality is how they feel at the moment. Okay? So there is no objective moral authority because their objective moral authority is simply their emotions. That's it. It's based on feeling. Yep, and the heart is wicked and deceitful. Now, moving along to the languages of the world. Okay? Universal morality, I mean, is, 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 a, is a real concept, right? The basic laws of the land are, in the world are somewhat the same. But when it comes to language, it's totally arbitrary, completely. When we look at the languages of the world, they are totally arbitrary. Look at the English word for horse, okay? Horse. You could have called it a bottle, 
Okay, whoever named it a bottle, probably Adam named a horse a horse, he could have called it a McGillicuddy, right? And we would have known horses as McGillicuddies. In Spanish, horse is caballo, Italian is cavallo, French is cheval, Hebrew, mare. See the big break there? Nothing similar about those, about those letters arranged like that. Who said so? I guess the scholars of the culture said so. And that demonstrates that there isn't really a law of languages. Um, why do we call the things that, why do we call this a table? Who said so? It is completely arbitrary, but when you look at laws all across the world, they are almost consistent. And that is, that is a sign that there is a great moral setter who put it into your heart that it is not okay to do evil to those who have done good to you. Is there a culture in this world where it is okay to harm somebody who has not done anything to you? Is there a culture in the world where you can lie and it's considered honorable? No, right? You give somebody a cup of water, they should not take a katana and slice your chest open. It, it doesn't work. And that, and that shows that there is a universal moral code and God is that setter. Okay? Number six, the case from the reliability of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, Friday, we're talking about this, so we're not going to spend time on it. Number seven, the case for the self-authenticating, internally consistent witness of the Bible. That's tomorrow, so we're not going to spend much time on that. And then when we go to number eight, what time is it? Okay, we're doing it. We come from personal experience. I have had a personal experience with God. All of you, on some level, have had a personal experience with God. I know that God exists in the same way that I know my wife exists. Now, you can try to convince me that my wife, Carla, does not exist, but your reasoning is going to have no power with me because I know that my wife exists. Why? Not because I can see her, but because I have had experiences with her. Now, pretend that, I mean, has anybody here ever been to Madagascar? Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay, so you could say that I'm on my way, I'm going to Madagascar, and the plane land, and you'd have to look at signs to know that, in fact, you landed in Madagascar, right? You would not know unless the signs told you you were in Madagascar. They could have taken you to Honduras and you wouldn't know, right? So um, when you try to explain someone, explain to someone what, that you're in Madagascar, they could say, no, you're not. And then you could say, wait a minute, I'm in Madagascar. I have an experience being here. I can see the food. I can see the people. I can hear the sounds of the water. I know that Madagascar exists. But the other person can say, I've never been to Madagascar, therefore Madagascar does not exist. This is the same type of reasoning that secular individuals use to say that God doesn't exist because they haven't had an experience with God. Okay? The Bible says in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, that you will find God when you seek for Him with how much? Therefore, different levels of, find, of, of uh, finding are determined by different levels of seeking. So if you make a shallow search for God, are you going to find Him? Maybe. Maybe on some level. You might get a drop, but you don't want the drops. You want Niagara Falls, right? Look at these pictures. That's me 
in uh, March 11, 2001. What do I look like there? I was totally depressed. I wanted to die. Now, I was never suicidal at any point in my life because I knew too much of Scripture to know that if you killed yourself, I mean, it's probably not looking good for you. You might sleep a thousand years too long. Because the just shall live by faith, and suicide is kind of not an act of faith, right? So this was at a very low point in my life. I was with a girl that I should not have been with, and I was doing things that Christians should not be doing. I actually thought about killing her and drowning her in Lake Erie, but then I was thinking it through, and I was like, well, I probably shouldn't do that because I'll get caught. Then I thought about, maybe I'll just set her house on fire, and her and her family, which was miserable anyway, would be put out of a miserable existence. But then I thought, well, that wouldn't be very good to do either. And then I had a, I had a truck, and I, uh, I thought about having some friends of mine from Olive Garden steal my truck and, and burn it, and they were excited to do it. But I thought, well, insurance fraud and prison time probably doesn't sound good, sound good either. So at this point in my life, I was living to avoid a punishment and to possibly get a reward. Is that spiritual thinking? That is human secular reasoning. I do things to get a reward or avoid a punishment. That's human secular. Even though I was going to church, I can count on one hand how many days of church as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian I have missed my entire life. That was the type of reasoning that I had. That is secular human reasoning. And it's possible that many of our people are in church living secular lives, thinking secular ways, but praising the Lord with their mouth, but denying God with their life. So at this point, I wanted the ceiling to fall on me and kill me, right? Kind of like Elijah is enough. Take my life from me. That's what I wanted. But let's fast forward 20 years. Any different? Is there a difference there? I know God exists because I have an experience with Him. I was in a car accident when I was probably 9 or 10 years old, and the story changed. See, my sister told me a totally different story. They told me that the power steering went out in like some 1970 ash tree. Does, you, does anybody remember an ash tree? It's kind of like a gremlin. So it's, I'm going way back, right? Um, my sister told me that the power steering went out, and then later, as I got older and the details really came out, she was driving, she was sitting in the passenger seat and her boyfriend was in the, the driver's seat and she was doing like this. And she was driving, the car was weaving like this and she overcorrected and put the car in a ditch. The car flipped over like this and then rolled over three times. While that happened, now I had my seatbelt on, but while that happened, I saw an arm right here, right across my chest. And it wasn't like my little weak arm. It was the arm of my angel. And the muscle definition on this arm, the bicep and the tricep, wow, that's all I saw was an arm. Okay? Secular individual, committed atheist, explain to me what I saw. How do you explain demon possession if you are a secular individual or a committed atheist? There is no explanation. I was hallucinating, blah, blah, blah. But how do you explain all the thousands of angel stories that, that are out there? That angels exist and these metaphysical supernatural beings exist proves 
that there must have been a great controversy and that there must have been a rebellion in heaven or else there is no explanation for these things. I mean, think about it. Many of the movies today are about demon possession. Not include it. They, it's, it's the point of the movie. How do you explain such things if you're a secular individual? Right? Well, we know that there were one-third of the angels in heaven that fell. They sided with Lucifer, and those are Satan's angels. And they possess people just like the stories in the Bible. We have an answer for them, but there must be some kind of you know, uh, natural explanation for, for why somebody levitates like this backwards with their eyes rolled back white and they're speaking in some different, some different voice. We know, but they will try to explain it super, you know, in some way that it's a natural process. So, what is the real objection to, the, to, to uh, disbelief in God? What is the real objection to belief in God? Psalms 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There's one day specifically designated for atheists. It's April 1st. April Fool's Day. I had to throw a dad joke in there. Okay, Psalms 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And the reason why is because they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is no one who does good. David is sharing that anyone who believes that there is no God is making an irrational choice. Verse 2, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. For the most part, those who live an atheistic life, and I put that little caveat in there because there are some honest individuals, who are agnostic, which means they just don't know, who live atheistic lives because they want to be free. Do what thou wilt. This be the whole of the law. That's, that's what they want. You are your own God, right? My, um, my wife has a cousin in, in, uh, that lives in Ohio now. She used to live in Tennessee. She was married to a guy named Brian Stitzer. Very low possibility of this story getting back to him. And if it does, hope you can come back to the Lord, Brian. He grew up a Seventh-day Adventist, and very worldly um, Adventist at that, and, and he, he, told, he told his wife that he was just tired of being guilty all the time. He was just tired of living this guilt-ridden life because he was doing things that he should not do, and I'm not going to divulge information here because the world is very small. He was just doing things that, that were directly against the principles of God's Word, and he wanted to be away from that. Rather than surrender his life to Jesus and confess and repent of his sins, he came to the conclusion that there is no God, and when he came to that conclusion, this is what is commonly explained as. They feel this feeling of freedom, that I am my own God now. They experience this liberty from all of the, the guilt and all of the, 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 the nights of going to bed knowing that you are living a godless life while there is a God. And they experience this, this release, this freedom. Now, thou, they can just push all that to a corner and live however they want. Friends, the reason for atheism, I believe, number one, 
is because Christianity is misrepresented in the world, which is the reason why France turned atheistic for 10 years, according to the Great Controversy, because the papacy was giving off a very bad picture of who God was. And France reasoned, if this is what God is, there cannot be a God, and we're going to kill anything that says they are Christians, hence the St. Bartholomew Massacre, right? So I believe the number one reason is because there's a lot of reasons for atheism and, uh, and legalistic Christians. I believe, number one, a misrepresentation of the real God. Number two, a misunderstanding of biblical theodicy, that God takes people from them when it's their time. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And you need to know that that concept is unscriptural because Job repented of that theology in chapter 42. And he understood later on, we understand, we can see the whole picture, that it wasn't God that did the taking, it was Satan. Amen? And so we, we, see, we see these things, and uh, there's other reasons why you're, why you're atheistic, but for the most part, it's because you're tired of being guilty, and you want to be free, and you want to do what you want to do, okay? I do what I want. I follow my own heart. You see that, that message clearly communicated throughout, his, throughout um, the modern media, throughout the movies, through a lot of songs that are out. Listen to your heart. There's nothing else you can do, right? This, this, song, this message is in a lot of songs. A popular band that I used to listen to, Metallica, um, has a song called Nothing Else Matters. Trust your heart and nothing else matters, right? Problem is, Jeremiah 79 says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, right? So when someone makes the claim that, that there is no God, they may give a philosophical and intellectual reasons for that commitment, but the Bible says that when someone else believes there is no God, they are not presenting intellectual or philosophical objections. They are making a moral claim, like, I like blue better than yellow, about that fact because they do not want God to exist. Because when I was at Mission College, Pastor Torres was the bass player of Bill Haley and the Comets. And he is the director, um, vice president for Mission College of Evangelism. And at one of his drug parties, someone asked the question, who is God? And then one person said, if God exists, now this is the rock and roll industry, right? As hard as you can get into it at that time in the 50s. There was the Beatles, Elvis, and Bill Haley and the Comets, right? Because the Big Bopper and Richie Valens died in the, the plane wreck, right? So you have, um, there was another guy in there too. I forget his name, but anyway. Someone said, if God exists, we're in a lot of trouble. So the real reason why they cannot, want, they cannot allow God to exist is because they don't want God to exist. And this is exactly what Lucifer did in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden. God said, on the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Right? 2.16. 3 verse 4 you will not surely die. Lucifer basically said, if I can't be God, if I can't be like the Most High, Isaiah 14, if I can't be like the Most High, I won't let God be the Most High either. I will make Adam and Eve their own gods, and they will choose their objective morality and rebel against the authority of heaven. They will be their own gods. So this existence of God stuff is very, very important because we now... now now I'm talking to Seventh-day Adventists here. Now I'm going to preach. We can say that the atheist and the secular humanist 
are godless heathen when we could say, well, I only take this part of the Bible as inspired, or I only believe this part of it, or I only want to do this part of it, and we can live as secular human beings saying, this is for me, this is not for me, when the Bible says that every word is inspired and useful for teaching. And we could live, we could live by works and by sight instead of by faith and deny the existence of God in that way. So I can't let everybody off the hook. We've got to have some devotional thought here. They have all turned aside. They have together become cor- corrupt. There is none who does good, not one. People want their feelings to be their own moral guide for right and wrong. Seventh-day Adventists living together before they're married. Seventh-day Adventists watching porn all the time online. Making their feelings their God instead of God themselves. <clears throat> Seventh-day Adventists feeling that their pastors should give all the Bible studies instead of get involved in ministry. That is, the Bible says the just shall live by faith, and you give Bible studies by faith just like you come to church and repent and confess of your sins. So when it all boils down, most people who claim atheism do so because they want to be God. Some are honest, but most won't let God exist because if they admit their life would have to change. So does it matter that God exists? It does. Because the existence of God answers these four basic questions that everybody asks about themselves. Where do I come from? What is my meaning in life? How should I live? Morality, destiny, where am I going? Origin, where am I from? Meaning, why am I here? Morality, how should I live? Destiny, where am I going? Now, Christianity is a thinking person's religion, and I think you've seen some of that this morning. Jesus did not come to disable our minds. He came to enable them so that we can reason, so that we could have life. So these four basic questions that we set out to answer. Origin, where did I come from? I've got just a few minutes left, so I'm going to zip right through this. Origin, where do I come from? Well, Genesis 2 verse 7 says, I came from the hand of Jesus, the hand of God. Okay? Matthew 19, 4 and 5. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Okay, Meaning, why am I here? That they should seek God and perhaps find their way towards him. Acts 17, 26 through 28. Um, I'm going to skip that. Morality. How should I live? If you love me, keep my commandments. Destiny. Where am I going? Well, Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. My friend JB told me that I was just nothing but a big ball of atoms. Evolutionist. I remember eating at at Denny's at after a shift when we got off at Chili's, and he told me, we got into this religious thing, and he told me that I was nothing but a big ball of atoms, and that I could be bought with $2.60 of, of, of chemicals, okay? Because that's what your, your, your makeup is worth, according to maybe with inflation, you might be worth $3 now. But there was a little boy who had a boat that was given to him for a Christmas gift, and he put this boat together, and... The springtime came, and he 
he uh, was so excited to see that his boat floated. He created it, he painted it, he put stickers on it, and now he was so excited that his boat floated. And then the wind came and blew his boat away. And he was saying to his little boat, come back, little boat, come back. But the boat didn't listen. And so he came home and cried to his father, Dad, my boat, it went away. Son, did you put the string on it? Oh, Dad, I forgot. He said, Son, I'm sorry. A week later, his mom sends him into town. And he gets the groceries that was on the list to get. And he sees in the picture window at the pawn shop, guess what he sees with lights on it? His boat. And he goes to the clerk and he says to the clerk, You've got my boat. You've got my boat. And he said, Young boy, if you want that boat, you're going to have to buy it. You're going to have to what? You're going to have to buy it. And then he goes to his piggy bank. And he cracks it open and he walks all the way down with his money and he counts his pennies and nickels and dimes and slides them across the counter. And then he buys his boat back and he walks out with his boat holding it like a baby. And he says to his boat, now you're mine twice. First, because I created you. And second, because I bought you back. You belong to God twice. First, because he created you. And second, because he bought you back. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we've had to spend time in your word and to be encouraged and to get some reasons. We might have drank from a fire hydrant. That's what seminars at Camp Meeting are. We expect that. But Lord, we have handouts and we have minds that we can reason through these things. Thank you for giving us reasons to believe. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.